Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is Portland writer and debut novelist Vanessa Veselka. Vanessa's work has appeared in Tin House, The Atlantic, Bust, Bitch Magazine, and Ma- Maximum Rock and Roll, among others. She's also a musician and writing instructor at The Attic, and she's here today to talk about her first book, Zazen, a finalist for the Oregon Book Awards, published by Red Lemonade Press. Welcome to Between the Covers, Vanessa Veselka. Thank you for having me. So Zazen opens in a apocalyptic America. There may be a war going on or there may be a war about to start. Bombs are going off in the city or nearby, but people seem oddly disengaged about this. And we have the protagonist, Della, who works in a vegan in a vegan restaurant. Uh, a lot of her friends seem to be more... Uh, obsessed with uh, the latest sex party or the I- finer tunings of uh, vegan ideology. And then a lot of the customers seem to be talking about wanting to leave town, maybe f- for an extended vacation or, or forever. But she seems very compelled to stay, even though she's not sure how she wants to engage. How did you come up with this? Or what propelled you to come up with this as the, the scenario to drop your protagonist into? Well, um, I always write character and voice first. So a lot of times I'll be free writing a character's voice and they'll say things and I won't really know what that means or I'll find pieces of it and go, that's interesting and I'll follow that train. Essentially with the character of Della, it's a world where um, wars have become almost ambient, you know, in the culture and people have gotten highly desensitized. It's it's not necessarily a speculative fiction. I mean, it's interesting. Some people read it as complete speculative fiction, and other people read it and go, this is today. You know, it's just sort of figurative language. Um, but I think that the, the thing for Della is that she sees everybody else. Some people are, like, selling their houses and moving to Bali. Some people are planning sex parties. Some people are organizing unions. Some people are doing community politics. Her parents are new left revolutionaries who've decided to live in the hills, you know, and, and everybody has a different idea about how you, how you move in the world, but none of them work for her. And so the book starts at this point where all of those ways have, to some degree, um, failed for her. And she's living in her brother's attic. Uh, she's come back from grad school. She's living in her brother's attic working as a waitress. And the book sort of takes off from there. So I don't have an answer for how I came up with it because it came in pieces, but it came, those parts of it were very, very early. They were basically the roots of it are in the first chapter or two. And I, so. I would definitely count myself among those who see it as not speculative fiction. I mean, we think about the fact that we've been at war for 10 or 11 years, and most people are living as if that's not, not going happened. on now. But one of, the, one of the things that I found remarkable about Della as a protagonist was she seemed to capture for me a um, perfectly the emotional state of the American left, maybe before the Occupy movement, but certainly after 9-11. And I, I think about like the time around the WTO protests and the IMF protests, and there was a sense that after decades of, of conservatism coming on the ascendancy that there was some traction happening and the left was making some progress and making some noise. And then with the contested election in 2000 and 9-11, it was as if um, in a year, decades of work could be like evaporated in the blink of an eye. And, and, um, and this sense of um, no matter how hard you try, it's not going to matter, which seems right. to be the vibe for Della because she talks right. a lot about these um, 
Walmart um, protests, where maybe you'll stop the Walmart from opening for three months, but a year from now, it's going to be as if the protest didn't even happen. This is a major part of the book. And, um, you know, I mean, I have to say it comes that tone, you know, I earned that tone through living through those times as well. And, and I agree with your assessment on it in that sense that when you look at everything, I mean, you just the, the onslaught that's coming, you know, I mean, I was at WTO, I was in a lot of these different movements, and it was, it was just the fact that something could be washed away. Um, it, it also kept me from really engaging in Occupy in, in the way that I would have earlier. And, you know, I'm still sort of rethinking that and reshifting. But, I mean, that was, was some of that fatigue and sort of what do you do? And um, I think that for her, she's become so intellectualized about everything, not devoid of emotion, but so, you know, built such mental prisons around each that every road she sees, she sees the end of. So she sees where it, it ends, right? And I think the thing that is that she doesn't know is that the world is still full of surprises, like, you think you know how it's going to end. You think it's going to end this way. But you don't really know. And the ultimate choice she has to make is more about are you in or are you out than it is about which road do you take. Um, so I think she's in the, that, that um, intensity stays with her through the whole book, this how do I engage. And she does try different ways to try to um, see change that will last. In case you just tuned in, we're, you're listening to Between the Covers, and we're talking today with Vanessa Veselka about her debut novel, Zazen. Well, this is, a, I think, a good point to talk about the title, because we have a protagonist who sort of instinctually is deciding to stay in a city that may be being torn apart without really knowing how to engage or or um, what to fight for exactly, or whether it's all going to matter in the end. But she decides to sit there in the middle of it and tell us what Zazen means in general and to you and, and how that resonates for the, the book. So Zazen is a, uh, it's a Japanese sitting practice of meditation. It, more than that, it's also sort of to be uh, fully present in the moment, to do, to do one action with one intention with complete presence. Um, that's the best way I could describe it. And I, the first conversation I wrote for the book was the conversation between Della and her brother about Della becomes very, very um, obsessed with people who set themselves on fire. And uh, that conversation was the first thing I wrote. And so from the very first 20 words, Zazen was part of the language of the book. Uh, and my publisher actually asked me because he didn't wasn't familiar with the word initially. He said, "What do you, you know, what if we have to retitle the book? Everybody's afraid it's going to sound like a hippie meditation manual." The sales reps came back and said, "We can't have a book called Zazen, right?" And uh, he said, "Give me something to tell them." And he said, "What what does it mean?" And I said, "It's about sitting still on fire. Like, can you sit still on fire?" And he was like, okay, I'm going to go talk to him. And we, they came back, and he's like, we're going to go with this. So it has that quality to me for her. It's a dominant question in the book is can you sit still on fire when nothing, when there's nothing around you that seems like the right action, can you burn in that spot in a certain way? So. And she's really taken by the Buddhist monks who are setting themselves on fire in particular because of the fact that they somehow stay still while right. they're burning. right. Uh, and I, I noticed that you have an interview in, in Tricycle Magazine, the, the Buddhist magazine. Uh, is, is Buddhism something that 
uh, is either a part of your life or that inflected uh, how you you put the book together? Absolutely. I um, I would not, you know, I had did a couple things in Tricycle, and I was even uh, in one called This Buddhist Life, and I said, you better ask your editor, I'm not really a Buddhist, if that's okay, so it's fine. So, <laughs> because there's always that debate in Buddhism about whether it's a philosophy or an ideology or a religion. Uh, Buddhism has affected me enormously, uh, particularly stuff out of the Pali Canon, stories out of it um, I used in pieces of Zazen. The, I, the funniest comment I had is somebody who said to me, I really liked all the Buddhist stuff, but then halfway through the book, it disappears. And I was like, there's a thing called the skateboard suda that she gives after the, you know, I mean, she, she actually comes out and gives the fire sermon later in the book, you know, and it's like, but um, it's been such a natural language for looking at, at where you connect and don't connect to the world and in such an intense way. So I don't, ex yeah, so it has, it has mattered to me quite a bit, um, the language and the practice of sitting. Well, let's, let's let our listeners listen to a little bit of the prose from Zazen. I have two recurring nightmares. In one, I am out of control on a river filled with Nikes, bulk tampons, and 20-pound bags and Indonesian patio furniture. In the other, I see the statue herself, gather her gowns, and step off the island. Liberty, liberty, hairpins falling like cluster bombs in the harbor and a bustle of chattering sound bites, she wades in. And I think I could take having these dreams if I knew when they would stop. If someone said, you will have the first one 239 more times and the second one six times, I could be okay with it and get used to it because I would know that it wasn't going to be forever. The problem is that I will never know, not until the day I die and look back and say, oh, that was it. February 22nd, 2000, and that's when they stopped. Likewise, I don't know when all of this will stop. It's a strange thing to be the god of somebody else's terror, even a minor god, because I knew I was harmless. People were figuring that out, but there was a shining moment in between, a strawberry on the cliff passing. It still shimmered. It was 3 a.m., and the emergency lamps were behind us. Ahead was the next barricade. Devadatta started walking down the street, singing something about blackout angels, but I couldn't tell what it was because she was facing the other way. I turned back to the kaleidoscope of police lights down by the bridge. Once I asked Raina if she thought if she could sit still if she was on fire. I mean, if you were trained to do it, I said, like those monks. Well, I think if I were really convinced that I was done with this lifetime, I could. But I think we make our own reality, and that's just not the kind of reality I would make. Yeah, well, I thought, the kind of reality I would make doesn't have people on fire in it either. Hey, Raina, how do you say Chardonnay in Sanskrit? I felt like a bullet in a gun, like whatever was inside me was going to come out and I had no control over it at all. I thought about the auto shop and the new land trust building and all those people trying to figure out who bombed them. Not why, but who. Who exactly, as if by knowing, they would earn their right to forget about it. When I called in the bomb threat to the sports bar near the Asian market, I did it because I wanted them to feel like I did, to cry over nothing and see bodies in the video aisles. It was only fair after all their stupid silent wars, their reality shows, and fake rock. They deserved some reflection on fear and the nature of impermanence. But it didn't work. It didn't work because they weren't already scared. If I had done it after the new land trust building, they would have been. Timing. Walking home, it occurred to me that the great thing about a bomb threat is how much it leaves to the imagination. Like your mom saying you're in trouble but not telling you why. You go over everything it could be in your mind. There were hidden rivers of guilt running underneath there had to be. 
Would you say that Zazen um, has a place that's specific? When I think of um, the book, obviously, since I'm from here, I'm doing some projection, I'm sure, but I also think of places like Paradox or uh, Vita Cafe or other vegan restaurants that have been around forever in Portland. And uh, I think about the, the DIY culture here and a very um, old and uh, intertwined uh, leftist sensibility. Mm-hmm. Is, is that, is, is Portland or is Cascadia and, you know, Seattle and Vancouver, is that a, some sort of making up some sort of mythical city that we're, we're in when we're in Zazen? I, I, it's very close. There's other, uh, I would say that the Mission District and Williamsburg are also in there uh, because the neighborhood she lives in is a neighborhood or the Lower East Side, you know, that's been gentrified and has all the tensions of a neighborhood that's quickly gentrified with, you know, sort of artist identities and possibilities for different people and and displaced, you know, black communities and all these kind of conflicts. Um, So that part is a little bigger than Cascadia. I think that there is this mythical city. I actually think of things as mythical cities and put them together. Um, So I know where the geography of this city doesn't match. And it wasn't a conscious like, well, I'm going to make this change here so it doesn't reflect this. It just was a very natural amalgamation. As far as the restaurant goes, um, I worked at the old Vita uh, before it sold up on the hill. And I loved it. It was so much fun. I had lots of friends who worked there. Um, But, yeah, I mean, that was... And there was a guy that was actually Mr. Tofu Scramble, I think, is the only person who I had someone in mind for. And I was uh, at the Paradox eating about a couple weeks ago, and he sat down next to me, and I just had this feeling like, should I? Uh, no, <laughs> I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> you know. Well, anyway. it must be strange when a character from your book is now yeah. sitting by you. In, in, at and the and he table. wasn't super based on that. Just he was the first inspiration of like, sure. you know, that guy who's in every vegetarian restaurant you ever go to, you know. Um, One of the things that I liked about the way you painted uh, a lot of Della's friends um, was it also brought out some of the uh, issues among that community. It wasn't like it was idealized. There was a sense of fundamentalism also there. And this um, litmus test almost like how vegan are you, for instance, or um, infighting around things that, you know, in the in the big picture, or they're losing, actually they're losing sight of the big picture, mm-hmm. essentially. And um, we're seeing all these other issues that really should be minor now that there's this impending external thing happening to the city, but they're not being uh, made minor. They're, they're still sort of in the foreground. Yeah, and I think that this is where, I mean, the novel got marketed as dystopian, and in some ways, I mean, I, I'm fine about that, but uh, in some ways I would disagree with it because, you know, utopian and dystopian, uh, novels like 1984, like all these things that have this idea that there's a sort of homogenous culture that is suppressing personal identity. That's kind of what they all are about, whether it's Brave New World. It's about the suppression of personal identity. And this is the exact opposite. This is personal identity has become so highly fetishized that even in the face of wars, even in the face of the other thing, it's like it, it's bigger than what's around them for real. And uh and so to me, that's, it, was, it was exactly counter. It's, it's extreme individualism. Well, that's a really an interesting point because on the one hand, that's true. Like all those cities you named also are known for that, I think, as mm-hmm. well. But, uh, but against that, there is also that dystopian aspect of this sort of unrelenting forward movement mm-hmm. of 
homogenization and gentrification. So you have like, even though it's not a a government, it's Walmart and and, um, gentrified neighborhoods that once were artist neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. But it seems almost like we what we're finding is in this city is a battle between that fetishized individualism and this uh, homogenized wave. Right. No, that's that's very true. I mean, it is dystopic in many ways. So in case you just tuned in, we're talking with Vanessa Veselka about her debut novel, Zazen. In your bio, you, you mentioned that you're actually, um, you've, you've done a lot of things other than writing. You're, you're a working musician. You've been a union organizer. You've been a cab driver and a waitress. Uh, how, do you feel like having that diversity versus just um, coming out of college and going to an MFA program, for instance, um, has made that a, an advantage for you in creating this world? I, I don't know what I would have been like without it. I can't even conceive of myself without you know, the experiences that formed me. But um, I would say that I draw on my experiences every day, all the time, as a writer. Um, and you know, it, it's really, really helped. You know, it's, it's just helped in a ton of ways to have um, views in a different world. You know, and I don't mean just like the, I think people think of that as an anecdotal experience. Like, well, pick you, I bet you pick up some good stories driving cab. It's like the anecdotes are the least interesting part of what you get from just having a varied life. You know, it's more the, you know, the breadth of experience with different kinds of people or the way you are or what you're seeing, you know, or how a ground Vic works. You know, I mean, like something as simple as like, you know, when I go and I'm writing something and I need to throw a car or a, something in there, I'm probably going to throw in something I have experience with if it's an object, a place, a time, you know. And so just little ways. It doesn't have to be sort of an anecdotal gotcha kind of thing. And I think that's how it gets portrayed. Like, well, you need to go get material. And it's like, no, you need to develop your mind so that you have an artistic sensibility. That can come from any direction. And with, with Della, one of the ways that captures sort of the the um, depression of recession is she, she has a graduate degree and she's working in in a restaurant as a waitress, which is is common in Portland and among other places. But do you share any of her interests? I, I, she her talking about geology and paleontology, and I I really liked how sometimes she would try to distance herself from her own pain and anguish by stepping into geologic time essentially and seeing things from a non-human vantage point, uh, which was a really great touch in the book to scale back like that and and revealing about Della as a character. And I didn't know if if geology was something that preceded Della or was something that you then went into to flesh out this this character. No, preceded it. I studied, um, I was a geology major and studied invertebrate paleontology at the University of Washington years ago. And... um, I was uh, I had a, a wonderful professor uh, who gave me many opportunities to actually do work with grad students, even though I was fully unqualified. Um, and I got to work with him a lot. And I learned about ten times more than I would have had the chance to learn in other ways. Um, but I dropped out and went on tour with my band, and that was sort of the end of that. So I've always had this like ghost imaginary self where I'm a you know actual paleontologist scientist, but I never thought about it. Um, it wasn't until, and I didn't make her that. What the way it came up in the book was, I started trying to talk about. Um, I was trying to ex- 
explain her, you know, when she's looking at like, you know, Taco Bells and Payless shoes and all these things. And the language that kept coming up for me was geological. It's like they're index fossils. They're marking, you know, I mean, like they're going to speciate quickly. I mean, like for some reason that geological language stayed in my mind. And so I kept trying to find how I would describe this. And it kept coming out in geological language. So I just sort of let the, it wasn't until later that I actually made her a geologist um, and let that language really go into it. Mm. Uh, So... That's interesting. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really refreshing in Zazen also is that uh, we have a character who defies easy gender stereotypes. Uh, she uh, doesn't have any of the typical um, f- feminine pigeonholed qualities. I, I, I don't know if I'm saying that properly, but I was curious for me as a male reader I thought it worked really well. I, I was curious how it has been received, Zazen, from a gender perspective. From a gender perspective. Have you gotten, I mean, it seems like right now with Hunger Games and and uh, with the movie Hannah and some other movies, there are these very um, self-actuated female protagonists mm-hmm. all of a sudden in the world. Like, um, and, I, and I would include this in there, that um, a really strong... Um, female lead. And I was curious if you had got any pushback around that or whether you were embraced by it or whether that hasn't been really a theme that's come up. That's kind of, it came up more in the writing when I was trying to find agents or when I would get early feedback on different parts of it. You know, there was, I did a conversation on the Believer Tumblr with Lydia Yuknovich about this, about, uh, you know, basically if you have a female character and she isn't seen crying early on, you start getting this feedback that she's like, well, she's unlikable, or like, we need to see her softer side. You would never ask that of a male character. You know what I mean? Like that they're supposed to break down and cry so you feel comforted by their humanity. You know, you're, they're supposed to be tough but vulnerable. You know what I mean? Like, right. but more than that, they're supposed to signal it in a gender-specific way, right? You know, so there was some of that. Um, I just ignored that because I thought it was stupid. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, I also don't have an agent. Um, I uh, I decided to go without, um, but the I would say in general, the gender thing. Um, I've had people say they can't, you know, that she's scary and they can't relate to her, uh, a couple at times. But um, in general, I, that hasn't come up as much. There was the only other thing was more of an orientation thing. She's not for it wasn't a big part of the book, but for Della, one of the few areas that she's not kind of struggling with is sex like she's okay with herself sexually you know she likes men she likes women but she doesn't have like it's an area of freedom for her it's not a it's not a place where she brings all this like inner turmoil about what she should be and how she should be it's some place that's actually a point of freedom for her and it's not highlighted a lot in the book but that's sort of by the fact that it's not remarked on as she goes through these different things you kind of get the sense that it's a place of freedom for her i had in the second draft a uh, one of the characters that is a guy that she has sex with uh, at the sex party um, uh, is he showed up in the end and they kind of went out it was a like a paragraph it was so small it was just more of I didn't even think about it and I had to take it out because the expectation of sort of heterosexuality like oh she found a guy 
not only for the sort of narrative arc of her, but the fact that he was a guy like had so much weight and it was something that I was totally irrelevant to me, you know? So I had to go back and take him out of the end and take his name out of the book because it signaled too hard. So there's things like that that you wouldn't think of if it wasn't a gendered issue that like, you know, you don't have to take responsibility for it, you know, that people are going to assume that this means something about, you know, heterosexual, you know, primacy or when but at the same time, I did have to say people are going to read it. There's too much narrative pressure from the culture there that if I don't pull this thing, it's just going to it's going to be assumed. And I don't want it assumed. It wasn't a big part. It's just not part of it. I really thought that was one of the strengths of the book, that it wasn't overemphasized. Mm-hmm. Like that it was just this is the way she is. Right. You didn't need to like blow a trumpet and say she's bisexual or not bisexual or or strong or yeah. it just felt like. Um, it felt matter of fact in a in a nice way. I th- I I thought with Good. Della. I'm glad. <laughs> so so were there any books that you uh, particularly uh, went to for inspiration when writing this? Um, uh, precedence to Zazen that I, you searched for I, inspiration in rewriting. I began to build this little four way uh, compass. And of of four different books that were radically different from each other. And what I noticed, because I, I felt like her voice broke into four different directions, is if I went in one way, I needed – the reason I used – the way I used the books is was like a calibration. If I was leaning too far in this one direction, then I needed to remember what – the exact opposite, what was great about the exact opposite direction. You know what I mean? Like in kind of – it sounds a little esoteric, but what it was was uh, one – I don't even know if I can remember all four. Sheltering Sky, Journey to the End of the Night, Blood Meridian, and it may have been Fight Club. Would you be able to briefly just say what each one did? Yeah. Uh, Well, Fight Club was – I had not read Fight Club until I wrote the book, and then somebody – an agent actually said you should read Fight Club. He really wanted it to be Chick Fight Club. And I read Fight Club, and I thought, this is super fun. I completely enjoyed it. Great. My book's not going to be Fight Club. You know, and we had this, you know, right. why did he want it to be Chick Fight Club? Because you sell Chick Fight Club by saying, I've got Chick Fight Club, and it's sold. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, we kind of parted ways over that. But what I think that book does really well is that kind of fast first person, sharp social criticism, right? That's kind of acerbic. Uh, and then I think Sheltering Sky is kind of the opposite of that. So I had the Paul Bowles on the other side is this kind of like really seamless, quiet, depressive, lyrical, lyrical interior. interior. And then on the other side, I had Blood Meridian, um, which to me was just the gothic language. I really see it as a gothic novel. And, and you know, it was and like Conrad is one of my favorite writers. And, you know, I, I used I played with gothic language in the book. I was very interested in this idea that I did not come up with. Uh, it comes out of Lit Crit, but of the imperial gothic with Conrad and like Wide Sargasso Sea and other things sort of being the where the, the hand in the drawer is the empire. You know, I mean, it's it's a very interesting uh, idea. And I was I saw Zazen sort of, that was one of the sort of touchstones I was looking at. So uh, Blood Meridian and the Gothic. And then uh, Journey to the End of the Night was just the sort of anecdotal, sarcastic, but reserved commentary that was funny. But, you know, just sort of like, and there I am, March. I just joined up for the First World War. What a bad idea, you know? I mean, so I was trying to sort of, when I was getting too gothic, remember there was something about being just like direct and a little bit looser when I was getting too fight clubby, you know, or whatever. I wanted to, 
remember what was great about Sheltering Sky, you know, about moving away. You know, so I used them in, in the third rewrite to calibrate those pieces. I, I love that. I've never heard an author do that before. That's very fascinating, the sort of your four angels it was, in the, yeah, uh, in and the I, writing process. It, I might do that in my next novel. I might actually do that, but only in the final rewrite. I mean, like, it's the whole thing has to be kind of done, and you have to know what the points are. But I might do that when I see the and that it worked for me to just think of it in those terms. I need a little bit of mental traps because it's not replication. It's just remembering when you get too focused on one thing, what's so great about the thing that's totally different from it. Right. You know. So what what are you working on now, Vanessa? I have two things I'm working on. I am working on a second novel. I did a novella. I don't know if I'm going to put it out or not because I haven't decided. Um, I will put it out at some point. I just don't know in what form. Um, whether I'll have it with short stories or separately. I've got a short stories coming out in Tin House and Zisipha and Swank, which is great. I'm very excited about it. Uh, I'm doing a big feature piece for GQ magazine over the summer, um, and that'll be out hopefully in November. And then uh, all of this is sort of to get back to novel writing, and which is really the form I like the most. And I, uh, I'm, you know, I, I like what I know of the beginning of my next novel. It's going to be very challenging. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It was great having you on Between the Covers today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. We are talking today with Vanessa Veselka about her debut novel, Zazen. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host.